welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I'm broadcasting from WOUF Wolf Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining me once again. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or that follow button, hey, go ahead and do so right now. I come out with new episodes every Wednesday morning that you're going to want to check out full of all kinds of dog training information and more. Don't forget if you're an Apple Podcast user, click that five-star review if you love what you're hearing. You can also find me on Instagram at Speak a Dogcast. Great show lined up today. The first segment is going to be Walk This Way. That's right, a little Aerosmith going on. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk more about the walk because we can't talk about the walk enough. It's the most important aspect of training your dog. Then comes building confidence in a timid dog. Have you adopted a dog recently? Maybe has some confidence issues? This is the segment for you. Then comes the breed of the week, followed by the listener Q&A. If you guys have any questions for the listener Q&A, you can email me, questions at speakadogcast.com. Your question might get featured on the show. Yes, but before we get going with the show today, got to give you that trivia question. Today's question is, what animal is known by the nickname the sea cow? Yes, what animal is known by the nickname the sea cow? I'll give you the answer to that question somewhere in today's show, so be sure you stick around, sit, stay, and enjoy the podcast. Next on Speak a Dogcast, walk this way. Yes, in the words of the great Steven Tyler, (laughs) walk this way, don't walk that way. Yes, no, walk the correct way. Right? There's always a right and a wrong way to do the walk, and you really want to make sure that you're doing it the correct way, the right way, you know? And majority of owners out there don't do the walk the right way. That's just the truth. You know, it really is. I mean, come on, think about it. You're walking down the street. How often do you see a dog pulling their owner down the street? And how often do you see a dog actually out on the walk? out on a walk with their owner, right? There's a big difference between the two. And unfortunately, vast majority of the time, we're not really doing the walk correctly, okay? And we have to be doing it the right way. Look, walks are 85% mental and only 15% physical. I want you to really remember that. Note that in your brain. 85% mental, 15% physical. Now, when you see everybody out there walking their dogs, Majority of the time, they're treating it as if it's backwards, as if it's 85% physical. (laughs) See, my my brain doesn't even want to say that (laughs) because I know how how it really is. So most people want to treat it like it's 85% physical and 15% mental, or maybe even just like 99% physical and 1% mental. And that's just, that's a problem, guys. It really is. Look, I I, I have to reiterate my my whole spiel on walks and... The reality is, what's a dog? A dog is a pack migratory animal. They're a domesticated wolf, and that makes them a pack migratory animal. So it's in their nature to get up in the morning and go for a pack walk. That's right. So it really doesn't matter how much we domesticate a dog. In the back of their brain, there's still that that wolf instinct going on. Guys, no matter how much human beings move along through the evolutionary period, we're still animals at the end of the day. There still is that animalistic instinct uh, instinctual needs, rather, is instinct and then instinctual needs going on that need to be fulfilled. So for a dog, the most basic way to fulfill their natural instincts is going to be that pack walk. You're their pack, 
take them for a walk. Um, look, I, I always say I end every episode with the same little catchphrase and it's get out there and walk your dog and sure it's fun and it's silly, but it's the truth. I, I chose to say that at the end of every episode for a reason. Um, it's not just a good way to end an episode. It's not just, Hey, it's a good way to end it the same way with the same. No, it's because it's really important. And I want to reiterate to you guys every time, get out there and walk your dog. It's so important. You know, uh, something small, I was talking to a client the other day who said um, that they they realize maybe they're not socializing their dogs quite enough. And they actually, they're very good about walking their dogs. They really are. They're awesome. They walk their dogs every day and they give them a really good walk. But maybe it's not quite enough because they see the same old thing over and over. And sure, we might change up the route in the neighborhood or something like that. But it, it doesn't matter. It's still the same place, the same location, the same sight, sounds, same dogs, same houses, same everything. And part of socialization, we talked a couple episodes, oh, was that last episode? Yeah, that was the last episode, wasn't it? About maybe the lack of socialization we're doing for our dogs. And part of socialization is not just letting them socialize with people, socialize with dogs. Part of socialization is letting them experience the world around them. And the walk Creating a healthy, stable, and good walk allows you to get out there and let your dog experience the world. You know, if it's just chaos and it's uncontrolled and you can't take, you know, I've heard it a lot where people will say, we just don't take, this is the beginning of training, uh, we just don't take our dog out because it's just not pleasurable. It's not pleasurable for us. It's not pleasurable for him. He barks at other dogs or blah, 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 whatever the, the issues might be. I hear that a lot where people don't take their dogs out because they can't walk them, right? So right there is kind of the proof that the walk is the most important building block, the most important aspect of where we start with training our dogs, okay? So part of that, going back to last week's episode a little bit again, just to reiterate, part of that socialization is just exposure, and you can't expose your dog in a healthy way without conquering a proper walk. So how do we start the walk? Well, the walk always starts with having the right tools on hand, right? Uh, now, I've talked about training tools before, did a did a segment a long time ago about training tools, and maybe we'll kind of go back and re- uh, revisit some of those in a further segment, but not today. Uh, today, we're only going to talk about my chosen tools that I like to use, a little bit of maybe the ones I don't use and why, but not, not too in-depth. Uh, look, it starts with the right tools. In my opinion, in all the time I've been doing this, the correct tool is going to start with a six-foot nylon leash right? Regular old six foot nylon leash. Now you can use a leather leash. You can use some people like the round rope leashes. Again, kind of to each his own on this guys. Um, and again, we're not going to go off the deep end into in depth on how and why and the specifics of training tools. But uh, suffice to say, I start off with a six foot nylon leash. That's my preference. Okay. Now from there, eh, where do we go? Right? We got to go to the collar or the harness or whatever. Now we know if you listen to my podcast before, you know I'm not a fan of harnesses. I see more harnesses out there than anything right now. And hey, look, I, I quite frankly, I just don't get it because vast majority of the time when I see a dog on a harness, they are walking their owner and the owner is not walking them. Is that to say you can't train a dog to walk on a harness? No. But is it the best tool for the job? In my opinion, no, it's not. It's not. My go-to collar is the Martingale collar, right? We've talked about the Martingale collar at uh, ad nauseum. <laughs> uh, the Martingale collar, to be specific with it, guys, real quick, the Martingale collar, collar that I like is going to be two-thirds cloth, one-third chain. Not 
all cloth. I'm not I'm not really a big fan of the all cloth nylon collar or excuse me, martingale collars because they just don't tend to release as fast and they don't have the the timing that I'm really looking for. Now, of course, sometimes, guys, I do use choke collars, and sometimes I also use prong collars. Yes, if they're used correctly, there's nothing wrong with using those tools. Now, I never use shock collars. I don't use scent collars, anything like that. Uh, but vast majority of the time, my choice and my go-to collar is going to be that martingale collar, okay? So six-foot nylon leash or leather leash, that's really, those are the two I prefer to use. Um, and then the uh, martingale collar with the chain on it. Okay. That's where it's going to start. You have to make sure you've got those two things. Then it also starts with having a treat pouch because yes, treats are very important when it comes to training and working with our dog and on the walk, it's going to be no different. Okay. Look, three ways to motivate an animal guys, food, affection, sex drive. Can't do anything with sex drive. Leaves me food and affection. So you better have both of those on hand, ready to go. If you want to be able to reinforce and strengthen behaviors in your dog, even when you're out on the walk. Okay. Now, as with everything, with training, sorry, theme, you might hear some noises in the background. I do have some snoring dogs in here with me, so I, I, I think I heard that through the headphones too. So I don't know if you're hearing that. Uh, you know, I think that's always a disclaimer I should give with my podcast. You might hear strange dog noises <laughs> in the background. Um, anyway, most of the time I record in the evening. You know, I, I will say that most of the time when I do my recordings, it's at night. It's when I have more time. It's when the dogs tend to be, you know, asleep. We've had a big day of of training, playing walks and such. <laughs> See, got to go for those walks. Um, it's very important. That's why I have nice sleepy dogs here right now. Uh, so anyway, getting back to it, uh, treat pouch, collar, leash, got to have them. And then to me, the most important thing to start after that state of mind, where's your dog's state of mind? Look, I don't really, I don't get this guys. I don't get pumping our dogs up to the point of ridiculous ridiculous amounts of overexcitement because when our dogs get really overexcited, their behavior becomes unmanageable. I mean, think, think about it. You know, I, I'm not humanizing dogs when I say things like this, you know, I'm not going, Oh, think about a child and how it relates now, but think about it from this perspective in the sense that if you have a child acting like a brat, I don't really want to give in and give them what they want. If I say, Hey, let's go to the playground and we're going to, we're going to go to the playground in an hour. And then the kid starts getting angry at me going, I want to go now and throwing a tantrum. And then, am I going to reinforce that behavior by then going to the playground? Or am I going to say, you know what, you need to calm down and relax first. I need the kid to be in a better state of mind before we're ready to go to that playground. Okay. So with that said, I don't really understand why people pump up their dogs like, oh, we're going to go for a walk. You want to go for a walk? Oh, I'm so excited to go and getting the dog all anxious. And then the dog starts whining or barking and going, and then the dog pulls them out the door <laughs> and then pulls them over. And then the dog is barking at other dogs out on the walk. And they, the, the human can't understand why they can't control their dog because you're pumping your dog up and all you're reinforcing and strengthening is overexcitement and overexciting behavior. And then your dog thinks they're supposed to act like a panicky, crazy, overexcited thing because that's what's been reinforced, right? So we have to start with a calm state of mind. Yeah. If my dogs are like really pumped up and really crazy and going nuts, we don't go for a walk. I wait till they relax. I might, you know, I might redirect it. I might ask them for a sit, for a stay, maybe for a lie down in a stay. 
and I'll wait a few minutes, guys. Wait a minute before I'm walking out the door, before I even leash them up. I'm not going to put a leash on the dog if they're acting crazy, okay? Really important minute details that set yourself up for success once you get out on the walk. Look, another another example, I was bringing a dog back from boarding the other day, and he got very excited to see his owners <laughs> a little too much, okay? And he had been wonderful for me the whole time he was boarding. He was a sweetheart, uh, brought him out into public, did walks, of course, uh, came on appointments with me, and he was awesome. Never, never got too overexcited. He was great meeting people, going up to them calmly. We got home, a little bit of a different story. Now, maybe the owners reinforce a little bit of that overexcitement, and then that's what he thinks he's supposed to do. So instead of letting him say hi, we waited him out. We waited until he was relaxed. We waited until he was calm. We waited until he wasn't obsessing over the owners. And once he relaxed, then we let him say hello. And the hello was a lot more controlled. It was a lot nicer and not so chaotic and crazy and jumpy and any of that madness, right? Um, So you have to think about what you're reinforcing, If your dog is crazy and you leash them up and walk out that front door, then all you're doing is reinforcing craziness. But if we wait for them to relax, or if we redirect their state of mind into a relaxed state of mind, well, then that's what we're reinforcing. Okay, so keep that in mind. When you're going for a walk, always make sure your dog is nice and calm and relaxed before you even leash them up. Now, a lot of times once you put that leash on, they go right back to excited again. Well, guess what? We're going to go right back to waiting again until they relax or redirecting them into a relaxed state, okay? Wait them out a few minutes. Guys, sometimes this process can take 10 or 15 minutes to get out the door. If in the past you've reinforced excitement on the walk, then yes, it's going to take some time to undo this and you're going to have to be patient. <laughs> I had a client say to me the other day, you have you have an amazing amount of patience, David. Um, <laughs> and look, it's the truth. To be an animal trainer, you have to have, you have, to have patience. You have to. You just do. You, you Sometimes it's just a matter of time. And you know, I made the comment back. I said, you know, it's interesting. Yes, I, of course I have patience. I said, but I think it's easier when you do it over and over. You start to see the patterns in a way that you can't really recognize by just having, you know, by having your own dogs. You have to you have to do it a thousand times with other people's dogs to really see the patterns the way that I see them now. And it makes it easier to be patient. It does because you see the end you you see the end of the of the, you know, you see the end of the light at the end of the tunnel if you will. By seeing these patterns enough times, I know all I have to do is wait this dog out a little bit, wait for that relaxed state, find the right things to reinforce that I know will come if I just wait it out. And then before you know it, we have a nice, relaxed dog. So, well, yeah, I have. A, I guess I have a lot of patience. Um, I, the patience has been learned. <laughs> Dogs have taught me to be more patient than I ever used to be. You know, uh, they've humbled me. They really have. Uh, it's one thing I'm very grateful for with working with animals um, is they can be very humbling if you know how to listen to them. Um, anyway, so... Uh, getting back to it, sorry, I got a little off track there. <laughs> getting back to it, guys, it really is about state of mind. Because if your dog starts off in a crazy state, then forget it. So once you do walk out that front door, if they go back to if they go back to overexcited, guess what we're going to do? We're going to go walk back inside and wait till they relax again. Okay, you can see the patterns being laid out here. You relax, we move forward with the walk. You act chaotic, we go backwards. We either redirect your state of mind or wait till you relax. 
it really is pretty basic and pretty simplistic to start this walk-off on the right foot. And that's very important because it kind of sets the precedence, right? Um, so, okay, let's say we're outside, we get out there, we're walking, all is well. Um, start with your treats, guys. Now, of course, I you know, silly me, I hadn't mentioned it. Um, once your dog does start relaxing, you need to be reinforcing it with a good boy and food. Gosh, how could I, how could I forget this? This is ridiculous, David. Should be slap on the wrist here. My goodness. Um, <laughs> how could I forget to tell you guys to reinforce the good behavior? Okay. So once you do have your, once your dog does relax at the front door, okay. Once they do sit down and relax, once they do kick out their legs and relax, once they do lie down and relax, I want to reinforce each one of those little baby steps with a treat. Good boy. And then be done. Good boy. Be done. They lay down, good boy, good lie down, be done. They keep lying down and keep staying, hey, good stay, good boy, be done. Okay? We always want to strengthen and reinforce anything we like. All right? So think about it that way, that once you start getting relaxation, you need to tell them, hey, keep doing that. Keep doing that. And the best way to say keep doing that is a good boy and a quick treat and then be done. Okay, we don't need to make a big deal about it. Go, good boy. Oh, good job. Oh, you laid down. Because what are they going to do? They're going to go right back to frantic. Okay. You also want to reflect what you want. If you want them to be calm, you need to be calm. Reflect that back at your dog. Okay. Ah, can't believe I didn't say reinforce that. Silly, silly me. All right. So <laughs> we're walking out the front door. We want to maintain focus by calling their name, Fluffy, getting them to look at you and rewarding the behavior. Okay. As we start walking out the front door, Fluffy rewarding that behavior of them looking at you, okay? Really, guys, it comes down to treats. It comes down to a lot of treats and rewarding focus. You have to reward a lot of focus with treats, and that's where the walk begins, okay? Um, and again, it starts before we even walk out that front door. Make sure you have their focus, and intermittently, you're redirecting it. Getting them to look at you, Fluffy, good boy, okay? Now, not to get too off on, you know, things that are not about the walk, but... Uh, just a side note again, guys, I've talked about it before. Kissy noise is so important. Okay. I pair a kissy noise and their name, Fluffy. That's my generalized dog name. <laughs> kissy noise, Fluffy, get them to look at you and feed them. Good boy. Fluffy, get them to look at you, make that eye contact. Good boy. Feed them. Okay. This is something you're going to do well before the walk, but it's very important to have this tool, to have this exercise practiced strengthened and reinforced and conditioned under your belt. It's important to have this ready to go. So when you're out on the walk and you walk out that front door and Fluffy sees a distraction in the street, you can go, hey, Fluffy. And they look at you. And then you can reinforce that redirection. And now your dog doesn't care about the dog. And now Fluffy doesn't care about the dog in the street, does he? That's how you get your dog to start ignoring things on the walk, paying attention to you and focusing on what you're doing. Okay. Now, I've kind of said I'm not going to get into too deep of details uh, on my next thing that I do on the walk. And that's these turns. That's these little redirections that I do. Part of it is it's kind of hard to just explain it over a podcast. And part of it is, guys, you got to train with me if you want to know all the secrets. <laughs> and these turns are definitely one of the biggest secrets. I've talked a little bit about them on surface level, but hey, to really dive into them, you kind of have to have training videos and see what I do. So feel free to reach out to me, questions at speakadogcast.com. I'm doing virtual training now. We could set up something and uh, hey, you can train with your dog with me. So uh, it's been going great and we could do some more of that. Uh, but anyway, suffice it to say, guys, it's all about being able to redirect their focus, 
control their focus, reward and strengthen their focus. And wouldn't you know it, if you have that, you're not really going to have to worry about much else when you're out on the walk. Now, a couple little other tips. When we do have a martingale collar on or any kind of constricting collar, it's important to understand how these collars function. Okay. And what I mean by this is it's important to understand how that collar communicates with your dog. You know, I always say, I always tell my clients, a loose leash and a loose collar means your dog is doing the right thing. And a tight leash and a tight collar means your dog is doing the wrong thing. Okay. And dogs are very black and white animals. They understand things in very black and white terms. So the collar is either going to be tight or it's not. And if there's anything in between or it's questionable, if it's, ah, is it a little tight? Is it a little, in my rule book, that means it's a tight collar because your dog, I, I can't really ask your dog, hey, do you think it's tight right now? All I can know is if it's completely loose, it's loose. And if there's any tension at all, I have to assume the dog can feel that tension because they can. <laughs> Trust me on that one. They pay attention to minute details such as just how loose that collar and leash is. Okay. So when we're using a constricting collar, I want to be very in and out with how I use it. We make small, quick corrections where the collar comes in and tightens for a split second and immediately releases. Very important, guys. Whenever we're using a constricting collar, I want to make quick, small corrections to make sure the collar comes in and tightens and then immediately releases right after. We never, ever, ever want to pull and hold. Never want to pull and hold on a constricting collar like that, okay? Very important, guys. Um, the whole concept of a constricting collar, of a martingale, of a choke collar, is to mimic the way dogs naturally correct each other. Little nip to the neck, right? So think about that collar needs to make a nip, not a pull and hold and choke and mm. I, As a matter of fact, I hate the, the fact that they're called choker collars because if used correctly, you should never pull and hold them. Okay, so really important details there uh, that go a long way. So if your dog does start getting distracted, does get ahead of you, you can make these small little quick corrections, quick turns, and maybe you'll figure it out, uh, <laughs> to redirect and correct your dog. Okay, and if we also compare it with a kissy noise, fluffy, and redirecting their focus, then I have a behavior to actually reward. Right? So there's a lot going on on the walk and there's a lot of things to think about it. But then at the end of the day, to me, it's all about K-I-S-S, -S, back to my rule of K-I-S-S. -S. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, you know, really though, keep it simple, guys. Keep it simple. It's about rewarding and maintaining focus, keeping a short but loose leash. That one I hadn't said yet. That's an important one you want to note and write down. Short but loose leash. We want to make quick corrections that convey to our dog there's a quick correction coming in and then the tension immediately disappears, right? Reward, consequence, reward, consequence, okay? Uh, broken down, guys, really quick. A tightened collar that stays tightened, what you're really telling your dog is consequence, 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 but if you can apply it, release it, apply it, release it, what you're saying is consequence, reward, consequence, reward. Think about it that way too, okay? And I'm not gonna go too deep, deep on, on that one as well. Um, but really, it's about focus. It's about keeping a short but loose leash. It's about maintaining that focus as you walk. And it's about creating a good pace and creating control for your dog. Don't let your dog control the walk. Don't let your dog choose where to sniff. 
You're going to create that control. You're going to create that focus. And I promise you, if you start treating it like that and treating it as a more of a mental exercise as opposed to a physical exercise, you'll have better success out there on the walk. But of course, if you guys want to have deeper conversations and questions about this, feel free to email me questions at Speak a Dogcast. Hey, we can also do that virtual training. Check it out. But hey, take those tips under consideration. You'll have a better walk with your dog. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services, such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and now offering virtual training as well. For more information, check out our website, www.thenatureoftraining.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. Located in beautiful Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. Speak a Dogcast, building confidence in a timid dog. Now, with all the rescue dogs that have, you know, that have been rescued <laughs> in the past few years with everything going on, obviously we all know rescues that are at an all-time high right now. And there's definitely a lot of dogs out there who maybe have some confidence issues. Now, when we think of confidence issues in dogs, we tend to visualize the dog hiding in the corner and shaking in the rescue, you know, the horrible visual that goes with it. But believe it or not, the opposite end of the spectrum can be the same way. If we have a dog barking aggressively at us and standing their ground, that can actually also be a confidence issue, you know? Confidence isn't necessarily always cower and fear, uh, or rather lack of confidence, should we say, is not always that. Uh, it can be the opposite end of the spectrum as well. You know, quick little lesson today on fight and flight behavior. When we talk about fight and flight uh, in dogs, you know, in animals in general, right? We're talking about fight and flight. We're talking about an instinctual behavior. And obviously, it's a coping mechanism uh, for safety, right? That's that's the whole point of fight and flight. It's, it's to stay alive. <laughs> that's the concept of it. Now, fight and flight, right? We know what fight and flight mean. Fight obviously means fight, come at you, and flight means run away. So I kind of look at it like we have a line of behavior, and on the line of behavior, at one end of the extreme, we have fight, complete fight, right? Like coming at you. Um, and when I say coming at you, I'm talking about an animal that doesn't, you know, when we're talking the absolute most extreme, we're talking about an animal that doesn't need to be provoked, that doesn't need to be threatened. That that's just, that's the ultimate fight mechanism right? And then we have the ultimate flight mechanism. Absolute just panic, fear, wants nothing but to get away from things, will shake maybe, will cower, will we'll sometimes urinate or defecate even if it's that extreme. That's the extremes of fight and flight. And thank goodness most animals don't live their lives in that level of extreme. Now what we do see on this line of behaviors, somewhere in the middle, well, ideally, we want to be somewhere in the middle, right? We don't want to be at fight. We don't want to be at flight. We want to be in the middle. We want to be at peace, right? That's really what any, every animal wants on this planet is stability, okay? So 
when we talk about fight and flight and like a dog or rescue dog, a lot of times these rescue dogs that come with baggage, that come with anxiety, they're living their lives somewhere on this spectrum of fight and flight, or maybe as a ping pong ball back and forth between fight and flight. And they never really find that middle ground. The ball doesn't know how to stop at the net. You know, like I, I jokingly say I play ping pong wrong when it comes to behavior. <laughs> I don't want the ball to keep going back and forth. I want it to stop in the middle. I want it to sit at the net and rest, relax. <laughs> that's how that's how we find stability uh, in the in the world of behavior. Okay, so fight and flight mentality. When we talk about fight and flight, those are what we both of those are what we call avoidance behaviors. Okay. People don't think of fight as a form of avoidance, but it is, right? It's, it, to me, it's really, it's kind of, it's no different than, than a flight behavior, than running away. Running away is very obvious in avoidance, right? I'm, I'm trying to avoid you by getting away from you. But fight is also an avoidance behavior because you got to think about it like this. When a dog is growling at you or ruff of barking at you and they want you to go, it's, it's clear the dog doesn't want you near them. Let's say you're walking past their yard and they're in a fenced yard and they're going, woof, 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 woof. A lot of times, if, especially if it's aggressively that they're doing it, it's not just like a warning, right? What they're trying to say is, I want you to go away. Right? When a dog gets possessive over a toy and they snap at another dog, they're saying, I want you, other dog, I want you to go away. They're avoiding that other dog. Right? So fight and flight are both what we call avoidance behaviors because they're using a mechanism, whether it be through fight or flight, to avoid that stimulus, to avoid that dog, to avoid that interaction, to avoid whatever it is in that moment. Okay? So fight and flight behaviors are the same. And when I see a dog displaying either one, whether it be fight or flight, a lot of times there's actually a confidence issue, right? Think about the human world. (laughs) Now, I'm not pointing any fingers, uh, but think about the human world. And we have somebody who's big and bad and has to drive a big old bad pickup truck that's decked out and, and, you know, or the biggest, baddest sports car. And what do we always kind of jokingly say? Overcompensation much? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Because of a lack of confidence and insecurity, right? Overcompensation. Well, we could kind of look at it like that, that fight, er is overcompensation and an attempt to control what, what, what that, that situation. In an attempt to avoid the conflict, then yeah, an avoidance behavior, that's what the dog is going to display or displace, right? So we kind of have to start thinking about confidence and confidence building in a timid dog from a different point of view, from a different standpoint. And that's why we have to come in viewing it from the fight and flight. Let's start there, okay? So... You know, a lot of times you'll see these stories. I've read stories of people at rescues who are really good with timid dogs. And you know what they do a lot of times with a timid dog, whether it be that the dog is fearful and hiding in a corner or barking at them aggressively. Do you know what the person doesn't do when, you know, one of these people who happens to be very good with it? They don't run away from the dog. They don't, they don't give the dog space. Excuse me, that's not the right way to say that because that's not what I mean. Um, they don't look at it this way. If I have a dog shaking in the corner and then I go, Oh, I don't want to scare you. And I run away from it. I'm actually just giving that dog what it, what it wants. It it's, it's so scared. It's trying to run away from me, but because it's in a, in a kennel or what have you, it can't. 
So if I remove myself, I'm actually reinforcing that dog's anxiety. If I, if I remove myself from the scenario when the dog is shaking and anxious and I'm giving them what they want in that moment, I'm reinforcing that anxiety. Right? So one of the first things we do with an anxious dog is, is I, you know, if I, look, if I found my, and I've worked at, you know, I've volunteered a little bit at, at some uh, shelters here and there. And when you find yourself with a dog like this, you know, it's, let's start with the timid side. Let's start with that, the flight side. When I have a dog like this, you know, you have to go into the kennel and you have to not make any eye contact. You have to be very passive. But I go in there and I, I sit down on the ground and I just sit there. And I wait until the dog relaxes at least a little bit. And I, what I mean by relax is if the dog is shaking uncontrollably when I sit down with them and then they stop shaking as hard, Maybe that's when I'll get up and leave because that's what I want to reinforce is them calming down. Now, that's that's a starting point. And then over time, after a couple interactions, the idea is the dog starts understanding. The more I freak out, the more the, this person stays here. But the more I relax, then they go away. Or maybe I can start bringing out food or affection. Okay, we're not going to dive too deep into this with like a shelter dog today. Um, but that's that's where when it when it's to that extreme, most people when they adopt a dog, it's not to this extreme because usually a, a rescue is going to work with the dog a little bit at first to try to, you know, get them somewhere before they give them to you. So this is a little more on the extreme end, um, this example. But you know, really when it comes down to it, the idea, guys, the idea is we don't want to reinforce that anxious behavior. And sometimes that means not giving the dog what they want. You heard me. Because dogs are dogs, and they're they're in they're in the human world now, guys. They're in, we have removed them from their natural world, and we've put them in this human world. And to think that a dog is always going to make the right decision is just downright stupid. I'm sorry, it is. It's not just ignorant; it is dumb. It's dumb to think that, guys. I'm sorry. It, that's the truth of it. You can't possibly think a dog is going to always want to make... So when people go, oh, I don't want to make Fluffy uncomfortable. Guys, Fluffy will continue to make themselves uncomfortable, unfortunately, if they think that that's what keeps them alive. It's very basic instinctual thinking when an animal is stuck in a fight and flight mentality. And so one of the worst things we can do when, when we have a timid dog is to reinforce that timidness by going, oh, I don't want to make him uncomfortable. Well, let's leave him alone. He's shaking uncontrolled. Let's leave him alone. No. No. Now, the answer isn't go over there and try to leash him up and let's work. No, that's not the answer either. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle, right? So think about what you're reinforcing when you have a timid dog and what you, what you want to reinforce, what you are reinforcing, what you want to reinforce, what you don't want to reinforce. Those are kind of three things you really need to consider, Okay. So if we have a timid dog, I don't want to reinforce that timidness by constantly leaving them alone, constantly not getting anywhere near them. No, we're going to find it somewhere in the middle. As a matter of fact, maybe I'll just go on with my daily life. You know, if I've adopted a timid dog, I'm just going to go on life as normal. I'm not going to overly coddle them and go, it's okay. But I'm also not going to, you know, completely try to give them space and not scare them and not make any noises in the house because I don't want to startle them. Because the problem is if you go that route, if you go one extreme or the other, right? One extreme, you're going to maybe scare them uh, if you try to push them too hard. But if you go to the other extreme of just totally giving them too much space and not wanting to make a loud noise, then the dog will never get used to the loud noises. 
And that way, when once you do make a loud noise by accident, it's gonna scare the hell out of them because they've never even heard it before in your house. You know, so you gotta think about these things. You have to think about it from a different perspective, and that's where it starts by building confidence in a timid dog. Is you have to change your perspective on it. And you don't want to coddle a timid dog. You really don't. You don't want to coddle them because then it just reinforces the anxiety. Sometimes it can make it worse. Well, if you're reinforcing anxiety, of course it's going to make it worse. That was a silly thing to say. Um, <laughs> okay, but yeah, this is this is you know it's it's a hard thing. It takes tough love to build confidence in a timid dog. You know, I had a, I have a dog in boot camp and she, she was a rescue. She was from the Bahamas. She came with quite a bit of trauma clearly because she was literally terrified of everything. And we're, we're still working on it. It is definitely a work in progress. And she was pretty severe, but she was severe to the point that the owner actually couldn't even bring her inside the house. She would pump the brakes so hard that they couldn't get her inside the house and they didn't want to scare her. Now, I agree, you don't want to scare her, but at the same time, guys, at some point, we got to leash her up and get her in that house and show her, hey, this isn't so bad. Let me get you some treats when you're in here. Let me feed you some food when you're in here. You know, getting her in the house was one thing, let alone getting this dog to, to crate properly. I got her crating within about two, yeah, two days. Two days she was crating without a problem because I had to push her just a little bit, just a little bit, not too much. You don't want to push her too much. You don't want to scare her. But we had to get her in the house and start reinforcing it. I had to show her at some point, you know, we got to do a little tough love and go, hey, enough's enough. Let's let's get in here, you know, because otherwise she was just avoiding it. And, you know, the owners at first and again, they didn't know what to do with a dog like this. Quite frankly, they weren't leashing her up. They were just kind of letting her run in the backyard and in the patio. And there's a little bit of a free for all and there was no structure. And so she's going, why? Well, you know, I'm I'm scared. I don't know these people. I don't know this trainer guy. And <laughs> Avoiding it's working pretty good for me. I'm still here by avoiding it. So I'm going to keep doing that. Okay, it's very simplistic processing going on in their brains, guys. But if all of a sudden I leash her up and go, hey, look, you're coming inside. And yeah, it wasn't, you know, she didn't want to at first. But once we got her in, wasn't a big deal. Now I have the, I also have the, 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 um, I've got a pack of dogs, right? So she watches six dogs, seven, eight dogs walking in front of her it does make it a little easier for her to go, oh, they're all doing it. Cool. I'll just kind of follow the pack. That's one way we can also build confidence. Bringing uh, underconfident dogs around confident, stable dogs. That's a great way. Look, I, I don't think I would have as much success in my boot camps as I did if it wasn't for having a pack of stable dogs. You know, really, they, they teach each other so much better than I ever could hope to. You know, uh, they speak the same language. They speak the language better than I could ever hope to. And so having that is really an invaluable tool. So that is one another great way to build confidence in your timid dog. Get them around other confident dogs. Now, that does not mean take your timid dog to the dog bark. That may not be the answer, guys. Dog barks are not usually full of the most stable dogs. I'll, be, I'll just be honest. Uh, you know, you've heard my, my piece on dog parks before if you listen to this podcast. <laughs> Okay, I'm saying it right now. Disclaimer, a dog park may not be the best place to build confidence with your dog. Okay, throwing that out there. Um, but yeah, you know, the best way to build confidence in a timid dog, guys, is to not baby them and not coddle them and slowly and carefully push them through their issues. Okay, push them through their issues slowly but surely and start reinforcing and strengthening 
calm and desired behaviors in them. Okay, if I have a dog who doesn't want to walk inside and all of a sudden they do, we're going to say, hey, good boy, good girl, and give them a treat if they'll take it. Okay, start thinking about, again, what you're reinforcing, what you want to reinforce, and, and maybe what you shouldn't reinforce. Okay, very important stuff, but it really is state of mind. And I think one of the biggest issues that most owners run into is it's coming, look, it comes from the heart. It comes from a good place. They want to do what's best for the rescue dog, but in doing so, they end up um, babying them, over coddling them, and not letting the dog build confidence. Okay. Now, again, dependent upon your dog and dependent upon the pace you're progressing with their confidence, you also need to get your underconfident dog out into the world. Yeah. Let them experience some of the world. Take them for walks in different new places, even if that means starting with somewhere like a nature trail. You know, somewhere that's a little quieter, but different. Uh, it's another good way to build confidence in your dog is let them experience the world in healthy, happy ways. Uh, then we can start working them up to maybe going to to a downtown area or to an arts festival where there's a lot of people and dogs and things to experience, you know, to work them up to bringing them out to lunch with you. Believe it or not, these are ways you build confidence in a timid dog. Now, another great way to build confidence in a timid dog, guys, basic obedience training. Yeah. Go back to your basics. Teach them commands. Sit, stay, lie down, leave it, drop it. Uh, even silly commands like give me a paw or fun commands goes a long way toward building confidence because it's it's sort of like a little kid succeeding, right? They, they succeed at something and we go, yay, great job. And it builds confidence in them, right? It's the same thing. So if you can set them up for success with something as simple as obedience training, man, it really goes a long way toward giving them the confidence that they need. Okay. So another, th another thing we got to do, you know, when I say basics walks, right? A good walk is another awesome way to build confidence in a timid dog, guys. Uh, I think once again, and you know, I said it on the previous segment today, it, it, keep it simple, keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate it and keep it simple when it comes to building confidence in your dog. Don't reinforce behaviors that are timid. Reinforce behaviors that are confident. It really kind of comes down to that. And if you kind of keep it that simple, you'll be surprised how quickly your dog will build confidence. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's our Breed of the Week. This week's Breed of the Week is the Papillon. Now, the Papillon is a member of the toy group, only coming in at 5 to 10 pounds. Now, the Papillon is a friendly, upbeat, and affectionate dog, and while they might be a little dainty and elegant looking, they are all dog underneath. Now, able to cope with warm or cold weather, city or country, these guys are adaptable and adorable. They have a long, beautiful flowing coat with a plumed tail, and they're a wonderful family dog and can make great companions for kids as well. They are highly intelligent little pups, and they do need a good daily walk. They can excel at obedience training and agility, too. Papillons are a tough little breed, but they are little. Now, a puppy could easily be injured by a child by accident, so caution and care must be taken. They are also susceptible to patellar luxations as well. Now, papillons have a long, rich history dating back to at least the 16th century. They have long been associated with royalty and wealth, becoming part of the craze of breeding miniature sizes of favorite dog breeds. They appear in many portraits by famous artists such as Rembrandt, Van Dyck, and Rubens. Now, Papillons were developed by crossing existing toy breeds with Spaniels, and the sporting Spaniel bloodline might explain why these little dogs might be a little bit more athletic than your average toy breed. 
They became a popular dog breed throughout Europe and were a favorite of ladies at the court. Now, traders would often carry the dogs in little baskets throughout France, Italy, and Spain. The early toy spaniels from which the Papillon descended had droop ears, but in the 17th century, Louis XIV had a small spaniel with upright ears that was developed. Now, this dog was given the name Papillon, which in French means butterfly. That was given that name for its resemblance to a butterfly with its beautiful ears. Now, the drop-ear version of the breed still does exist today, known as the Feline, though it is not really commonly seen. Now, the Papillon was quite popular among the French aristocracy, being owned by Madame de Pompadour, Louis XIV, and Marie Antoinette. But it was in Spain that the dog was refined and popularized. The Papillon was added to the AKC in 1915, and it remains a popular breed today, coming in at number 35 on AKC's list. The answer to today's trivia question, what animal is known by the nickname the sea cow? It's the manatee. Yes, that might have been a little bit of an easy question for all my Floridian friends. But yeah, the nickname sea cow is the manatee. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's our listener Q&A. The first question today comes from Susie from Youngstown, Ohio. Susie asks, how do I ask people nicely not to pet my dog? I feel like a jerk and they look at me like I'm crazy when I do ask, but I'm trying to teach my dog to be calmer and approaching people and people getting overexcited at my puppy is not helping. What do I do? Great question, Susie. This is, <laughs> look, it's a tough one, you know, I'll be honest, there really isn't a nice way. There, there isn't. Because the problem is if you're nice about it and you go, hey, could you please not have, you know, people are like, oh, it's okay. I don't mind your dog getting all excited. I love dogs. Let me let her jump all over me and get chaotic. And so that's the problem. If you're nice about it, people just poo-poo you. But if you're a jerk about it, they listen to you, but then they think you're a jerk. <laughs> I, look, the solution is, everybody, you need to be more respectful of people's dogs. Uh, that's the solution. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen tonight, Susie. That's not going to happen tomorrow or the day after. I wish people would be more respectful of people and their dogs because exactly, exactly to your point, Susie, you're trying to train your dog. You're trying to accomplish something behaviorally, and all of these people are making it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, because people just don't listen. People will straight up come up without asking and start petting your dog and go and making them crazy. And then you ask them to stop and they go, no, essentially is what they tell you. I mean, what? And then when you're a jerk about it, they look at you like you're the jerk. And it's like, come on, guys, really? So uh, look, I feel your pain. I really do. Now, luckily, I'll admit this in the area I live now, People are a lot more respectful about it than where I lived in Orlando. Uh, I just, I'll just say it. It's the truth. Um, I don't know why. I don't know what it is. But people down here have been a lot more respectful. And kids down here have been a lot more respectful about asking, can I pet your dog? Um, I still run into it. Don't get me wrong. I still run into grumpy grumps. And I have to deal with them. And it's, it's one of my biggest pet peeves. It really is. Look, guys, you should always ask before petting a dog. Always, always. I mean, from the perspective of the dog could bite your hand off, number one, uh, you don't know that person, you don't know that dog. But to me, it's more about respect for the person and their animal. It's their dog. 
It's not your dog. It's not there for your for you to be pet, uh, for you to be petting it. That, that's not the reason that dog is out in public. Now, again, I don't have a problem with people petting my dogs as long as it's under the correct context, as long as they ask, as long as my dog is being calm, so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, Susie, I'll be again, I'll just be honest. There's really not a nice way to say it because most people, most people, not everybody, but most, yeah, in my experience, most don't respond well when you ask nicely. So look, if you have to be a little bit of a jerk to work on it, it is what it is. But here's the best way. Here's the best way to approach it. It's hey, can you actually wait one second and help me train my dog? We're trying to work on them not getting so excited. So would you mind helping me train them? People love that. They love helping you train your dog, especially if they love dogs. Once you say that word like training and can you help me, word, once you say that word, (laughs) once you say that phrase, hey, I'm trying to train, can you help me? People love to help. You know, they love to be needed. Um, It's true. It's true. So tap into that psychology of the person and use it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? That's the best way to do it. But really, you know, some people just don't listen. And hey, there's not much you can do about it. Next question. This comes from Jerry from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Jerry says, my wife and I have a new puppy, Stella, and she's about 13 weeks old. Now, when my wife gets home from work, she loves when the puppy jumps all over her and gets overexcited. But the puppy's going to be a pretty big dog once she's full grown, and I don't like the idea of this behavior continuing into her adult years. What should I do? Jerry, what you should do is get on top of this behavior right now. Um, <laughs> well, I just look, man, I don't know what to tell you on on you have to plead or beg your wife to, to stop this because, yes, you're right. This is going to be a problem. If your dog's going to be big, your dog is not going to understand mom versus other person who doesn't want to be jumped on. She's not going to be able to make that distinction. All she's going to know is that when someone comes home, when someone comes in the door, I lose my mind. That's what's being strengthened. That's what's being reinforced right now. So look, you just, you got to stop. You know, the easiest way is if you're already home, leash up the dog. Don't allow Stella to jump all over your wife. Leash her up. Don't let it happen. Turn and walk out of the room. Wait for her to calm down. Then you can re-enter the room and try it again. Wait for your wife to calm down, then Stella. No. (laughs) Uh, No, but seriously, look, you've got to get your wife on board with this. Everybody in the household that you, you know, if anybody else in your house is getting them overexcited, if you have friends that come over, that get, they've got to get on board with this. Guys, stop making puppies overexcited. Stop it. Like, there's no other way to say it. Stop doing it. <laughs> You've got to stop making puppies overexcited because, again, just like you said, Jerry, your 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 dog is only going to get bigger and she's going to potentially hurt somebody. Yeah, whether it's a four-year-old kid or 84-year-old grandma, uh, if the dog's going to be big, she has the potential to hurt somebody. And it's not going to be on purpose. It's going to be out of overexcitement. But that's just it, guys. Stop reinforcing overexciting behavior. It's not okay. It's not healthy, and it's not good. Um, so look, hey, Jerry, I leash her up. Leash her up when when your wife comes home, um, and control the dog's behavior. Use treats to reward when she relaxes, when she sits. Try see if your wife is willing to work with her and get her to do just a sit, you know, and then have your wife give her treats. I have no problem with the dog being happy to see. Uh, somebody when they get home, I have no problem with a little bit of excitement, but it's the overexcitement we want to avoid. Because like you said, could spell trouble down the future. So leash her up, try to slow it down, try to reinforce relaxing behavior when people come in the door. And more importantly, try to get your wife and anybody else who comes in to not make her overexcited and to only 
reinforce and engage her once she's nice and relaxed. That's going to wrap up the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening in. Hey, click that subscribe or that follow button. Leave me a five-star review if you love what you're hearing. Find me on Instagram at speakadogcast. Have a wonderful week. And don't forget, get out there and walk your dog. Oh, 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 oh